Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. This is Brother Jonathan. In this episode, we're going to be talking about defending the resurrection of Jesus. Now, there's nothing original in this episode. I'm using what I read from others who are much more learned than me. In fact, they are experts in their field. So I'll be going by their points and outlines pretty much this whole episode because I simply can't do any better. Um, And I'll name their works at the end of the episode. But in this episode, I'll be laying out some facts that show that the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth should be considered a historical event and not just religious speculation. The standards that I'm going to use are the ones espoused using the minimal facts method. Um, It has been popularized by Dr. Gary Habermas of uh, Liberty University and more recently by Michael Lacona, which I believe has his doctorate now, but they describe this method in the following quote. While we hold that the Bible is trustworthy and inspired, we cannot expect the skeptical non-believer with whom we are dialoguing to embrace this view. So, in order to avoid a discussion that may divert us off our most important topic, we would like to suggest that we adopt a minimal facts approach. This approach considers only those data that are so strongly attested historically that they are granted by nearly every scholar who studies the subject, even the rather skeptical ones. Most facts we use meet two criteria. They are well-evidenced and nearly every scholar accepts them. We present our case using the lowest common denominator of agreed-upon facts. This keeps attention on the central issue, instead of sidetracking into matters that are irrelevant. This way, we can present a strong argument that is both supportable and compelling. What that means is that you can't deny these facts because you don't believe that the Bible is the Word of God. You also can't deny these facts based on your worldview. And this may seem contradictory to what I've discussed before, but it's actually not. For example, the statement, John went to the store in May of 2018, either happened or it didn't. You may argue about how I went to the store or why, but I either did or I didn't. These facts that I'm going to present are so well attested by history and agreed upon by those that know the data that they are almost undeniable. And you'll understand the significance of that distinction as we get into it. But I will say that as a Christian, this method kind of rubs me the wrong way sometimes because I believe the Bible, all of it. And this method of approaching the resurrection of Christ uses the most secular and skeptical standards when approaching the issue. In this way, using the standards of secular and skeptical scholars, by their own standards, the resurrection of Jesus is the logical conclusion of the evidence. And when I use the Bible in this methodology, it's not being quoted as the inspired and infallible Word of God. It's being quoted as just an ancient book of literature. Dr. Gary Habermas usually says when he speaks at colleges and universities that if the Bible is the Word of God, then the resurrection happened. Then he goes on to say that if the Bible is only partially inspired and partially the Word of God, of men, then we still have the resurrection. And then he goes on to say that 
If the Bible is nothing more than an ancient book of literature, to be held no more inspired than Homer's Iliad or Plato's writings, then we still have the resurrection of Jesus as a historical event. And that is how strong the historical evidence is. And I just want to say that before getting into it. I believe the entire Bible. Um, but this method is meant to cater to the skepticism of unbelievers to show them that even on their level of skepticism, the resurrection is provable. So first, we'll talk about facts and evidence. This method is different from the last two parts that I've done in that it deals specifically with evidence. In the previous two parts leading up to this one, I have intentionally not dealt with evidential arguments so that I could point out the issues of worldviews and philosophical and logical problems with other religious perspectives. All evidence is interpreted by your presuppositions. And those that are familiar with historiography, which is the study and philosophy of history, are well aware of this problem. And they are aware of the problem of people, people needing to transcend their horizons. Now, a person's horizon has been defined as how historians view things as a result of their knowledge, experience, beliefs, education, cultural conditioning, preferences, presuppositions, and worldview. And just as I talked about in the first part of the series, one good reason to believe, every fact or piece of evidence is interpreted, and no amount of evidence is going to convince someone of the resurrection of a dead body if someone has already committed themselves to naturalism. Until they examine their naturalistic worldview and see its self-defeating nature, they will never listen to any evidence of the supernatural. They a priori, a priori just say no. Um, this problem is especially seen when dealing with the issue of the resurrection of Jesus. One historian stated, Presuppositions consist of everything one brings to the texts one is handling, philosophical beliefs, theology, and culture, and they influence decisions at every stage in the process of historical Jesus study. Now, historians are well aware of this problem that seems to escape so many in the STEM fields. Um, perhaps it is because they are so committed to believing that the scientific method can lead to all truth, which is scientism or empiricism, depending on how you state it. But both of those worldviews are self-defeating as well. History is unobservable because it has already happened. Um, someone can test the explosion of an atomic bomb today with the scientific method, but they cannot test the explosion of the one dropped on Hiroshima or the one dropped on Nagasaki directly. Because those events have already happened, they cannot be tested directly ever again. No event that has already happened can ever be tested directly again. It's speculation, speculation based upon things that we find today after the fact. Events similar to those can be recreated and tested, but the same exact historical event under the same exact conditions, assuming that we know them, cannot be repeated and tested directly. That's the one, one of the major limitations of the scientific method. Not all knowledge comes by observation. And this is the problem of the origins issue for scientists. Naturalists really have no assurance about anything for how everything began, because they assume that they can do that. Some of them. But historical events cannot be directly tested. And no other event in history has been so hotly contested or critically examined as the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. 
one historian stated the issue this way, It is impossible to gaze upon facts without interpretation. All historians come to their investigations with selective criteria of judgment forged by both acknowledged and unrecognized predisposed interests and cultural assumptions. There is no absolutely objective place to stand. When it comes to the quest for the historical Jesus, our need to be aware of our own prejudices seems particularly acute. No other figure in history elicits such passionate responses nor engenders such opposite conclusions. Now, since we have already discussed this issue before, I won't belabor the point here again. It has to be addressed, though, because it is a fact that is ignored by many people. People want to believe that they are neutral, and they aren't. They need to be confronted with this issue. In this episode, since we have already discussed worldviews and presuppositions, I'm going to discuss evidence. Now, if you are someone who would call themselves an atheist or agnostic, then go and listen to the previous episodes, One Good Reason to Believe, and From God to God, first. The same goes for you if you refer to yourself as a deist, or really any other religious perspective at all. And you can listen to this episode by itself, but I don't think that you'll get the whole point as clearly. There are common questions and objections that are raised that I deal with in those other episodes. So as I ended the last part, the verifying claim of Christianity is unique to the world. I quoted from the Quran, the Book of Mormon, a Catholic seminary professor, and a New Age movement expert to show you that these leading world religions are entirely subjective in their verifying claim. And by verifying claim, I mean the standard that they put out for themselves to verify whether or not they are true. The Quran bases its veracity on the fact that it sounds pretty and must be from God. Surah 2, verse 23. The Book of Mormon says that if you ask God, he'll tell you it's true, if you really mean it. The Book of Moroni, chapter 10, verses 4 through 5. The Catholic seminary professor said that religions can't be verified empirically. And I would agree with him so far to say that his religion can't be, and neither any other than biblical Christianity. The New Age movement teaches that all you need to do is to realize that you are God, and you'll see it's true. They're all completely subjective. But the verifying claim for Christianity, as the Bible defines it, is entirely objective. Jesus said, I'm going to die. When I rise from the dead, you'll know that what I'm telling you is true. What more could someone ask for in verifying a teacher's claims? Jesus' test is different in that it leaves no room for ambiguity. Either he rose from the dead or he didn't. And that's the linchpin question of the Christian faith. Did Jesus rise from the dead? And when all these other religions have subjective tests as, for, as the verifying claim for their belief system, and Jesus' claim is completely external and objective, if Jesus did rise from the dead, then every other religious system is false. Now, I'm going to talk about five historical principles, which... I'll be kind of referencing at one time or another throughout this episode. And these five principles are used by historians to determine whether or not some particular account of history is credible. So, point one, multiple independent sources support historical claims. That's when an event or saying is attested by more than one independent source there is a strong indication of historicity, or that it is historical. Point two, 
attestation by an enemy supports historical claims. And that means if testimony affirming affirming an event or saying is given by a source who does not sympathize with the person, message, or cause that profits from the account, we have an indication of authenticity. And an example of that is if Julius Caesar says that this happened, well, then you could say, okay, well, he might have a reason to say that. But if the his enemy says the same thing, you have a better reason to believe it. Point three, embarrassing admissions support historical claims. Um, that means an indicator that an event or saying is authentic occurs when the source would not be expected to create the story because it embarrasses his cause and weakened its position in arguments with opponents. It opened up a, a door for someone to argue against him with, with a greater force. Um, point four, eyewitness testimony supports historical claims. Um, eyewitness testimony is usually stronger than a second-hand account. And also, taking into account that enemy attestation might be considered sometimes higher than that because an eyewitness might have a reason to curve things or put it in a different light by his bias or closeness to the event or something he might gain from it. And so sometimes eyewitness testimony is the stronger and sometimes enemy attestation is stronger. Point five. Early testimony supports historical claims. This one seems pretty common knowledge. The closer the time between the event and testimony about it, the more reliable the witness, since there is less time for exaggeration and even legend to creep into the account. So before we get into whether, you know, some facts about Jesus, whether or not he rose from the dead, let's talk about the fact, let's briefly consider our record of Jesus predicting his death and resurrection, because that's almost just as important. It's one thing if Jesus rose from the dead, it is quite a different thing if he said he's going to rise from the dead and then does it. So, in Mark chapter 8, verses 31, we read, and remember, we're not reading the Bible in a sense that it is the inspired word of God. We're reading it as if we're just quoting from any other ancient book of literature and applying the same standards that secular historians um, apply to anything in history. So in the book of Mark, chapter 8, verse 31, we read, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Now there are significant things in the context of this passage to support it as being authentic to the words of Christ. The term Son of Man though used over 80 times in reference to Christ in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it was not used by the early Christians later to refer to him. Um, critics called this the principle of dissimilarity, and it's one of the most skeptical criteria that they use to judge the Scriptures, and this passage passes the test. It means that this statement is most likely not something that was added after the fact by Christians, because it uses a title for Christ that the early Christians didn't. Uh, also, this statement is repeated in the parallel passages of Matthew 16, uh, verses 21-23, and Luke chapter 9, verse 22. Those two passages contain Semitic elements in the language that Mark does not include, showing that a Jewish influence, at the very least, from the language. 
This shows that multiple sources were most likely used to verify this quote from Christ. There are elements in the other accounts that are not mentioned in this one. They just didn't copy the passage from one another. And this is the critical criteria called multiple attestation. That means this saying is verified by more than one source. Lastly, there are two rebukes in the context of this verse that would have greatly embarrassed the early Christians. The first being that in the context of this passage, when Christ says this, Peter, who would become a leader in the early church, rebuked Jesus for saying that he would die, which is the point of the entire Christian faith. The second being that Christ in turn rebuked Peter for rebuking him about it. So here you have Christ, the Messiah and the Savior in the Christian faith, who is rebuking one of the early leaders in this account. And when evidence is presented that would greatly embarrass the person presenting it, in this case the apostles, it is more likely to be true, because it opens them up to arguments from critics. If it had been made up, such as some claim the the Gospels are, these types of things would have hurt the cause of Christianity and been a source of embarrassment. Therefore, it's most likely true. This is called the principle of embarrassment. Now, the next passage in Mark chapter 9, verse 31, we read, For he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. Now, many scholars hold that this passage may be quite early, because the language used shows an Aramaic influence. Anywhere in the Gospels where Aramaic is used or insinuated, such as in another passage where um, it's transliterated, transliterated as Talithakumai, um, it is believed to predate the text and be original. Um, the common spoken language by the Jews in the first century was Aramaic. Their ancestors had learned it when they were in Babylon hundreds of years before. And so in the first century, the Jews spoke Aramaic, but the New Testament was originally written in Greek, except for there's rumors that there was a copy of the book of Matthew in Aramaic before it was translated into Greek, but we've never found it. Um, but also, Jesus is also referred to as the Son of Man here again, um, which is a title that the early Christians did not use to describe him. And so, this passage, therefore, is supported by early attestation and dissimilarity. Thirdly, Jesus last supper statements about his body being broken and his blood being shed as found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 24 through 25 written down by Paul and Luke chapter 22 verses 15 through 20 written down by Luke both of them support Christ's claim for vindication that is of his claims of being Christ after his resurrection because um, both Luke 22:20 20 and 1 Corinthians 11:25 appearing nearly identical shows that they most likely draw from some independent source predating them both. In the parallel passage in Mark 14, 22-25, we read of Christ saying, He will not drink any more of the fruit of the vine until he drinks it new in the kingdom of God. And in the passage in Luke, we read that Christ said that his father had appointed him a kingdom in Luke twenty two twenty nine, And his language in Mark 14, 25 implies that he expected to be raised and vindicated. But he even goes on to directly state that he would rise from the dead in Mark chapter 14, verse 28. And this text is supported, therefore, by multiple attestation, early attestation, and dissimilarity. And then fourthly, 
We see in Jesus' prayer and conversation with his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane that he was expecting a violent death. This is shown in Mark 14, 32 through 41, Matthew 26, 36 through 45, Luke 22, 39 through 46. Now, the fact that Jesus showed fear and apprehension about facing death actually bears witness to its truthfulness. Jewish writings were filled with examples of people dying martyrs' deaths with great bravery, however manufactured some of those may be. Even the early church had the record of Stephen's stoning where he showed no fear. And the fact that Jesus showed fear and apprehension was quite embarrassing to early Christianity. If the claims for Jesus' divinity were made up to support an idea for a new religion that the disciples were simply pushing, then why would they make their Savior appear to be afraid and apprehensive? This embarrassing inclusion shows that it is most likely true. These statements are supported, therefore, by the principle of embarrassment, and also it is supported by multiple attestation. Now, there are other texts that can be used, but these are the texts that have the supporting evidence of historicity by the standards of critical scholarship. The facts that these claims have such support also greatly raises the probability of the many others as being reliable also. Now, what should be remembered when considering the fact that Christ predicted his own death and resurrection is that the disciples were not convinced of his resurrection because he predicted it. On the contrary, they continued to misunderstand his prediction and not believe it, as is recorded in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 33, chapter 9, verse 31 through 32, chapter 14, verses 27 through 31, and Luke chapter 24, verse 13 through 24. And even when people claimed to have seen him raised and went to see the empty tomb, the disciples continued to still not believe, as is recorded in John chapter 20, verse 2, verse 13 through 15, Luke chapter 24, verses 10 through 12, and John chapter 20, verse 24 through 25. And the question that should be on your mind is, what then caused them to believe it? Okay, now having shown that Jesus did indeed predict his resurrection using the standards of historicity, let me briefly state four facts that support the resurrection of Jesus using the minimal facts method. And then I will state one more fact that does not have 100% support of scholarship, but does enjoy 75% support, which is still quite good. And I will list them first, and then I will discuss them individually. So here they are. First, Jesus died by crucifixion. Second, Jesus' disciples sincerely believed that he rose and appeared to them. Um, Third, the church persecutor Saul, who would later become Paul, suddenly became a believer. Fourth, the skeptic James, the brother of Jesus, suddenly became a believer. And five, this is the one with only 75% support, the tomb was empty on the third day. Now, these may not seem to be much, but you'll find that together they are quite hard to account for. Also, remember that we're going on the minimal facts. These, with the exception of the fifth fact, are so well supported as to be almost unanimously accepted. Now, the fifth fact still having 75% of scholars accepting it. So, any theory about the historical Jesus has to account for all of these, and it has to do it well. So, let's talk about the first, that Jesus died by crucifixion. 
some people on the fringe still try to say that the person Jesus of Nazareth never existed. History shows that not only did he exist, but it was known that he was crucified. In support of the fact that Jesus died by crucifixion, we have five sources from non-Christians. First, we have Josephus in his Antiquities 18.64, when he says, When Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing amongst us, had condemned him to be crucified. And that's in reference to Jesus of Nazareth. We have Tacitus in Annals 15.44, when he says, Nero fastened the guilt of the burning of Rome and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for the abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And Lucian of Samosota, a, the Greek satirist, in The Death of Peregrine said, The Christians, you know, worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. Lucian also mentions in another place that Christ was crucified in Palestine. Uh, fourth, we have Marabar Serapion. From prison, he said, uh, they said in a letter, or what advantage came to the Jews by the murder of their wise king, seeing that from that very time their kingdom was driven away from them. Now, though he does not mention that he was crucified, he does mention his death at the hands of the Jews. Um, and five, in the Talmud, in Sanhedrin 43a, we read that on the eve of the Passover, Yeshu was hanged. Yeshua was the Hebrew form of the name Jesus, and being hung on a tree was how crucifixion was described in antiquity. Now, in addition to these non-Christian sources, we have early attestation from Christian sources. Paul mentions Jesus' death by crucifixion no later than A.D. 55 in 1 Corinthians and Galatians, both of which are accepted by critical scholars as being written by Paul. Paul also said that he preached the same thing to those in Corinth in A.D. 51, or within 21 years of Jesus' crucifixion. Now, the earliest witness to the death of Christ can be found in 1 Corinthians 15.3, and that passage is actually believed by scholars to be an early Christian creed predating the text of the New Testament itself. And that passage reads in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8, this is what it says, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, and then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. Now this early Christian creed is accepted as a creed because the words delivered and received communicates that Paul is giving them the tradition that he received. Now the passage also contains indicators of an Aramaic original. That is, remember Aramaic was the language spoken by the first century Jews, and the New Testament was originally written in Koine Greek. And this translation from Aramaic to Greek sometimes comes through in the Greek. But in the Greek, it's fourfold use of the Greek word haughty, which means that, since, or because, is common in creeds. Also, Cephas 
is the Aramaic name is the Aramaic for the name Peter, even though Paul wrote in Greek. The text content is also stylized and contains parallelisms. Um, and there are terms that are not normally used by Paul himself. And that has led a great number of scholars to say that this is an early Christian creed. Now, using some basic math and some other referent events, we can date the creed to within five years of Christ's crucifixion very easily. Um, these other points are, uh, one, the crucifixion is usually dated to around 30 AD. Two, Paul was converted about one to three years later, which would be about 31 to 33 AD. Three, Paul went away after his conversion for three years and then visited Peter and James in Jerusalem. It's recorded in Galatians chapter 1, verses 18 through 19. And most scholars believe that he received the creed from the apostles at this time. Four, the other option is that he received it in Damascus at his conversion three years earlier. Either way, he probably received it within two to five years of Jesus' crucifixion. Now, this places the date of the creed even earlier than that since the teaching would have had to circulate for a long enough period of time to be formulated into a repeatable form. This means that the early Christians were preaching these things right after the death of Jesus. Now, this early Christian creed is very significant because, one, it is early testimony to Jesus' resurrection. It shows that they were teaching it within pretty much right out of the gate. Two, it's probably eyewitness testimony to Jesus' resurrection. Three, it is multiply attested. You have Cephas, which is Peter, the Twelve, which is all the apostles, more than 500 people at once. James, then all the apostles again, and then lastly, Paul, whenever he was a hostile person against the, the teachings of Christianity. Um, and then four, it lists multiple post-resurrection appearances of Christ, even to groups. Um, there's the twelve, over five hundred at one time, and then all the apostles again. It also lists individual appearances to Paul, Cephas, and James. Now, another evidence for Jesus' death by crucifixion is the fact that the narratives appear largely credible given their satisfying of the criterion of embarrassment and the plausibility of certain peripheral details. And I mentioned earlier that there are other accounts prior to Jesus outside the Bible, such as in 1 Maccabees, that are depicted as being brave and defiant at their impending torturous death. This contrast with the depiction of the death of Christ sets him apart. Lastly, death by crucifixion gives an extremely low survival rate. Most who argue that Jesus could have survived crucifixion are ignorant as to what it medically entailed. When Josephus came to Jerusalem after Rome was sacked by Titus in 70 AD, he saw three of his friends crucified but still alive. And so he went to Titus, whom he was acquainted with, and he asked to let them go. And even though Titus conceded in letting his friends down, two of them still died from their wounds. And I want you to listen to this. This is the only ancient source recording anyone ever surviving crucifixion. Now also, there is no ancient evidence that Jesus was let down from the cross before dying. And let's not forget also that Jesus was scourged first before being led to be crucified. Now this scourging as related in the martyrdom of Polycarp, um, an ancient uh, letter written in the early, um, early Christian church, reported 
some, as in related in the martyrdom of Polycarp, reported some who were so torn by whips that their veins and arteries became visible. Josephus tells of a man who just prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70, AD 70 was whipped to the, to the bone by one of Pilate's successors. Some were reportedly whipped to the extent that their intestines were exposed. And truly, it was a miracle that Jesus survived long enough to be crucified. Now, Michael Lacona sums it up thus. In summary, the historical evidence is very strong that Jesus died by crucifixion. The event is multiply attested by a number of ancient sources, some of which are non-Christian and thus not biased toward a Christian interpretation of events. They appear in multiple literary forms, being found in annals, historiography, biography, letters, and tradition in the form of creeds, oral formulas, and hymns. Some of the reports are very early and can reasonably be traced to the Jerusalem apostles. The passion narratives appear credible since they fulfill the criterion of embarrassment and contain numerous plausible details. Finally, the probability of surviving crucifixion was very low. Now, it is no wonder then that the rather skeptical scholar, Paula Fredrickson, said, The single most solid fact about Jesus' life is his death. He was executed by the Roman prefect Pilate on or around Passover in the manner Rome reserved particularly for political insurrectionists, named, namely, crucifixion. So Jesus died by crucifixion. Next, we'll talk about the second point. Jesus' disciples believed that he rose and appeared to them. There is a virtual consensus among scholars who study Jesus' resurrection that after Jesus' death by crucifixion, his disciples really believed that he appeared to them risen from the dead. And we'll address this by breaking it down into two parts, that they claimed it and that they believed it. So first, let's talk about the fact that they claimed it. And we have three points to this. We have Paul as an independent source, the oral, right, oral tradition, and the written tradition. So, the testimony of Paul about the disciples first. Paul said that the disciples claimed Jesus rose from the dead. And it's important to remember that we're not even arguing from the point of view that the Bible is the word of God now. The minimal facts method does not require that concession. So even if the Bible were just an ancient book of literature, which no skeptic can deny, the things that it records bear at the very least a historical witness. Now in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 9 through 11, Paul acknowledges that he himself is an apostle like them, and that he labored more than them all. But he considered himself the least of all because he persecuted Christians before his conversion. It is recorded inside and outside of the New Testament that Paul was acquainted with the other apostles and fellowshiped with them. He ends this passage by saying that they both preached the same message, that Jesus rose from the dead. And his personal knowledge of the apostles is related in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 also. So next we'll talk about the oral tradition that passed through the early church. The early creed from 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8 testifies that the apostles and the early church openly preached the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We already discussed this creed, so I won't repeat it here. But in addition to the early creeds of Christianity, we have sermon summaries, such as in Acts, chap Acts chapters 1 through 5, chapter 10, chapter 13, chapter 17. 
And these sermon snippets are dated to probably within 20 years of Jesus' crucifixion. Their topic? The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. These provide even more early testimony to Jesus' resurrection. They may provide eyewitness testimony to Jesus' resurrection also. And there are further sources of witness to group appearances of Christ post-resurrection to his disciples, found in Acts chapter 10 and 13, as recorded by Luke. Next, the written works of the early church. Now, regardless of the outcry from skeptics, all four Gospels contain multiple claims by disciples, written from within 75 years of Jesus, that Jesus rose from the dead. At the very least, we have to take them as a historical books of literature, which say that Jesus rose from the dead. At the very least, you have to concede that. Now, we also have quotes from the Patristic Fathers. Um, these are early Christians in sort of the the generation after the initial dis- apostles. We read, in about AD 95, Clement of Rome, who was placed as the bishop of the churches in Rome by the apostle Peter, he said, Therefore, having received orders and complete certainty caused by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and believing in the word of God, they went with the Holy Spirit's certainty, preaching the good news that the kingdom of God is about to come. It's in 1 Clement chapter 42, verse 3. So Clement reports that the disciples were completely assured by Jesus' resurrection. Now, around 110 AD, Polycarp wrote to the Philippians, saying, For they did not love the present age, but him who died for our benefit and for our sake was raised by God. Polycarp to the Philippians, chapter 9, verse 2. Now, let's talk about the fact that they believed it. The disciples' transformation from cowering to courageous is well attested. These men went from abandoning Jesus at his arrest and execution to men who boldly preached that Jesus rose from the dead, enduring persecution, poverty, and torture even unto death for defending it. And while it must be stated that just because someone dies defending something, it does not make it true at all. Now, all we are saying here is that their willingness to suffer for it shows that they indeed believed sincerely that Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to them. Now, we have written sources from within and outside the New Testament that state this. Um, We have the author Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. He He records the willingness of the disciples to suffer and even die for proclaiming that Jesus rose from the dead in Acts 7 and 12. We have Clement of Rome, who was a contemporary of Peter and Paul, who records the deaths of them both in 1 Clement chapter 5, verses 2 through 7. We have Ignatius, who likely knew the apostles, who reports that the disciples were so encouraged by seeing and touching the risen Jesus that they were unaffected by the fear of martyrdom. That's in Ignatius' epistle to the Smyrnians in chapter 3, verses 2 through 3. Polycarp was instructed and appointed by the apostles and attests that Paul and all of the apostles suffered. That's a Polycarp epistle of the Philippians, chapter 9, verse 2. Tertullian also recorded the same in his Scorpiace in 15. Origen, likewise, in Contra Celsum, uh, 256 and 77. Eusebius, who was called the first church historian, circa 263 through 339 AD, for the martyrdoms of Peter and Paul, cites Dionysius of Corinth, about 170. Tertullian, about 200, and Origen, about 230 to 250, 
He also cites Josephus about 95, Hegesippus about 165 to 175, and Clement of Alexandria about 200 on the martyrdom of James, the brother of Jesus, who we'll get to next. Actually, not next, after Paul. But in all, at least seven early sources testify that the original disciples willingly suffered in defense of their beliefs. Now, if we include the sufferings and martyrdoms of Paul and James, the brother of Jesus, who was converted after the initial um, 12, then we have 11 sources. It is important to note that there is no evidence anywhere of even one of them recanting. Now, contrast this with the fact that of the 11 men that Joseph Smith, the prophet of the Mormon church, showed the original golden plates that were supposedly translated into the Book of Mormon, six of them left the Mormon faith. That's over 50%, and none of them faced torture and death. The disciples of Christ all faced torture and death, and not one of them recanted. You have to keep in mind also that these men suffered and died based on their own first-hand knowledge of the facts. People today can believe in a religion and die for it based on what they believe through a text, such as the Quran. The disciples of Christ died for what they knew to be either true or false. And all evidence testifies that they sincerely believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Next, we'll talk about the church persecutor Paul was suddenly changed. Now, what would convince someone who dedicated themselves to stomping out a religious sect to become a follower of it? Because that's the case with Saul of Tarsus, who was later to be called Paul the Apostle. After the death of Jesus and the beginning of the Christian church, persecution began against the movement. Saul was one of the men tasked with doing so. And by his own testimony, he held the coats of the men who stoned the first Christian martyr and consented to his death. Now, this man, who so ardently fought against Jesus of Nazareth, he became the most notorious of the early Christian missionaries and an apostle. Now, what could cause such a change in his mind about the person of Jesus of Nazareth? What could convince him to go from believing that Jesus was a false prophet who died justly to widely and boldly proclaiming him to be the Son of God raised from the dead? Okay, now, in support of the fact that Paul was converted from being a hostile person— we have his own testimony of his conversion. Paul himself records his own testimony in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 through 10, Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, and Philippians chapter 3, verses 6 through 7. And his conversion is also recorded by Luke in Acts chapter 9, chapter 22, and chapter 26. Now, Paul makes a notable comment in Galatians chapter 1, verses 22 through 23, where he says, um, talking about his, himself, he says, And was unknown by face unto the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preacheth the faith which once he destroyed. Now, this was after he had gone away for three years, Galatians 1.18. These believers in Galatia had not seen Paul themselves, but they had heard of him by his reputation of persecuting Christians before his conversion. That is how, how he was known. Now, these together give us multiple attestations of Paul's actions before and after his conversion. Next, we'll talk about his suffering and martyrdom. Paul himself speaks of his suffering and persecution in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23-28. through 28. And Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. Luke records Paul's sufferings and persecution throughout the book of Acts. 
um, chapter 14, verse 19, chapter 16, verses 19 through 24, chapter 17, verse 5, and also 13 through 15, chapter 18, verses 12 through 13, chapter 21, verses 27 through 36, and chapter 23, verses 12 through 35. Clement of Rome records the suffering and martyrdom of Paul in 1 Clement, chapter 5, verses 2 through 7. Now, Polycarp records the same in his epistle to the Philippians, chapter 9, verse 2. Tertullian, likewise, in Scorpiose 15, he's also cited in Eusebius' history, uh, 2.25.8, um, and Dionysius of Corinth, um, as cited by Eusebius in the same passage, uh, 2.25.8. Um, Origen, in his commentary in the book of Genesis, as cited by Eusebius in his history, chapter 3, verse uh, 1. I believe chapter 3, verse 1. Now, we have early, multiple, and first-hand testimony that Paul converted from being a staunch opponent of Christianity to one of its greatest proponents. Remember also, Paul, unlike people converted today, believed based on primary evidence. He personally believed that Jesus appeared to him after his death. He did not come to believe based on a conviction of an authoritative text, which is how a Christian today would become converted. He was changed from a hostile viewpoint to become a Christian because he believed that Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to him. He suffered suffering and persecution unto martyrdom and proclaiming it without ever recanting. Now next let's talk about the conversion of James the skeptic. See, the Gospels report that Jesus had four brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, plus some unnamed sisters. Josephus, who was a non-Christian Jewish historian from the first century, mentions the brother of Jesus who was called the Christ, whose name was James, in Josephus' Antiquities um, 20 and 200. First, we'll talk about James' conversion. The Gospels report that Jesus' brothers were unbelievers during Christ's earthly ministry. It's recorded in Mark chapter 3, verse 21 and 31, um, chapter 6, verse 3 through 4, and John chapter 7, verse 5. Now, they actually thought that he had lost his mind. The ancient creedal material in 1 Corinthians 3, I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 7 that we met, went over earlier, lists an appearance of the risen Jesus to James, where it says, after that he was seen of James in uh, verse 7a. Now, after the death of Jesus and subsequent to the alleged resurrection, James is described as a leader in the Jerusalem church by Paul in Galatians chapter 1, verse 19, and by Luke in Acts chapter 15, verses 12 through 21. Now remember, we're not quoting the New Testament as the Word of God this time. We're simply using it as ancient writing by independent sources. And so he went from being listed as somebody who thought that Jesus had lost his mind to after Jesus' death, we, we're told that he was a leader in the Jerusalem church. Now let's talk about his suffering and martyrdom. Uh, Josephus records the martyrdom of James for the Christian faith in his Antiquities of uh, 2200. Hegesippus, as quoted by Eusebius in his history in uh, 223, and Clement of Alexandria records the same as quoted by Eusebius in his history um, 2.1. And we can say the same thing for James that we said about Paul. James died for what he knew personally to be either true or false. And he died as a Christian martyr. And so the question you have to ask yourself is, what made the brother of Jesus, according to the flesh, honestly believe that Jesus rose from the dead? 
whenever in his life he believed that he was a false teacher who, ju- who probably died justly by the condemnation of the Jews. Okay, let's talk next about the empty tomb. Now, this is the one fact that doesn't meet our standards to be a minimal fact because it does not have an almost unanimous support from scholars who study the subject. But there is strong evidence to support it, though. Dr. Gary Habermas has noted 23 arguments for the empty tomb posited by scholars from 1975 to 2002. We'll only mention three in this episode. So first we'll talk about the Jerusalem factor. Jesus was publicly executed in Jerusalem, and he was also publicly buried just outside Jerusalem. The first place that Jesus is reported to have appeared after his alleged resurrection is just outside Jerusalem. The first place the same alleged appearances were publicly preached was in Jerusalem. The place that the New Testament church began was in Jerusalem. That's not only recorded in the New Testament in the book of Acts chapter 2, but it was recorded in Tacitus Annals 1544 also. Now, if the body of Jesus was still in the tomb when the early church started preaching the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead, then Christianity would never have been started. All the Roman authorities and Jewish leaders would have had to do was to produce the body and show it. And there was not a shred of evidence that this ever happened, or that they even attempted it. Now, some people have tried to argue that the body would not have been recognizable, and that's the reason that they never produced the body. Then there are several problems with this, though. If the New Testament is right about the timeline, then the bodily resurrection of Jesus was being preached 50 days after his death. Medical examiners have said that the body of Jesus would still have its identifying features, hair and crucifixion marks and those things, especially in a dry climate such as Israel. Secondly, producing the body anyways would have been a very heavy blow to early Christianity. It certainly would have dissuaded a great many of early believers. Producing the body, regardless of its condition, would have been very beneficial to the Roman authorities and Jewish leaders. Thirdly, the only argument that was raised against the resurrection claim of Christianity for the first hundred and, little over 120, 130 years was the claim that the disciples stole the body. Now, that is very important to consider. It was the only argument that people had. It's notable because the entire point of that argument is to explain why the tomb was empty. Now, this indirectly shows that the tomb was empty. Now, I'm not talking about appealing to silence either. An appeal to silence would be something along the lines of, well, they didn't say that the body was there. But that's a fallacious appeal to silence. I'm pointing out that the entire point of the argument that Celsus, a 2nd century critic of Christianity, and others gave was trying to explain away the empty tomb of Jesus. I'm appealing to what the critics did say, not to what they didn't. A body of any sort produced that even closely resembled something that could have been Jesus would have been devastating to early Christianity. Nothing of the sort was found or produced. This would have been extremely easy given the close proximity of his tomb to Jerusalem. Next, we'll talk about enemy attestation. Now, I've already mentioned the second point. Jesus' enemies verified the empty tomb by their argument. There would have been no need to to account for an empty tomb if the body was still in it. Now, as I said already, this isn't an argument from silence. They were trying to explain why the tomb was empty. 
the Jewish leaders were recorded in Matthew chapter 28, verses 12 to 13 as the first to put forth this argument. And Justin Martyr in the second century in Trifo 108 records that it was still a common argument. It's also recorded by Tertullian in De Spectaculus 30. If there was any other argument about what happened to Jesus' body, then we have no record of it. Now, let's talk last about the testimony of women. Now, this doesn't land as well, I think, today because um, been pushing for the equality of women in these things for decades now, at least in the United States, I think since the late 1800s. But back in the first century, the testimony of women was very, very weak. If you were to manufacture a story to promote a cause, then you would try to make it as palatable as possible. You would not make up some fact about it that would intentionally hurt your cause or open it to criticism or mocking. Nevertheless, in all four Gospels, women were the first witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. Only in two Gospels would male witnesses come in and after the female ones. Now, in both Jewish and Roman cultures, women were not seen as reliable at all. And here are some early Jewish quotes to give you some idea. Um, we read, Sooner let the words of the law be burnt than delivered to women in the Talmud, Sota 19a. Um, the world cannot exist without males and without females. Happy is he whose children are males, and woe to him whose children are females. That's in the Talmud, um, Kedushin 82b. But let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex, nor let servants be admitted to give testimony on account of the ignobility of their soul, since it is probable that they may not speak truth either out of hope of gain or fear of punishment. That's Josephus and his Antiquities, um, 4, 8, 15. That's Josephus and his Antiquities, 4, 8, 15. And last one, any evidence which a woman gives is not valid to offer. Also, they are not valid to offer. This is equivalent to saying that one who is rabbinically accounted a robber is qualified to give the same evidence as a woman. That's in the Talmud, Rosh Hashanah 1.8. Now, there are some places where there is a higher view of women found, but the New Testament itself describes that at least the immediate circle of the disciples held this view, um, as is recorded in the Gospel of Luke, where it says, and returned from the sepulchre and told all these things unto the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and other women that were with them, which told these things unto the apostles. And their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. Luke 24, 9 through 11. So even the disciples did not believe the testimony of women when it first came to them. And if the disciples were going to construct a story for personal reasons, then they most likely would have placed themselves as the first witnesses. They certainly would have, wouldn't have said that they didn't believe the first witnesses, especially make them win women. For this reason, the empty tomb can be held to be historically credible on the grounds of the, of the ease with which the authorities could have proven the contrary by producing the body, and the enemy attestation of early critics, and the principle of embarrassment by the testimony of women. And here are two quick comments on this from some scholars. Um, first one, not a few, but rather a majority of contemporary scholars believe that there is some historical kernel in the empty tomb tradition. And the next quote, 
all the strictly historical evidence we have is in favor of the empty tomb, and those scholars who reject it ought to recognize that they do so on some other ground than that of scientific history. And the references for all these quotes from scholars are in the show notes. Now, let's talk briefly about some arguments. The former facts that I have given to you are what we have to deal with. The four minimal facts that enjoy almost unanimous support from scholars who study the subject, and the one fact that enjoys about 75% of support. And I'll list them here again. Jesus died by crucifixion. Very shortly after Jesus' death, the disciples had experiences that led them to believe and proclaim that Jesus had been resurrected and had appeared to them. Within a few years after Jesus' death, Saul, who persecuted Christians, converted and became Paul, after experiencing what he interpreted as a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to him. Not too long after Jesus' death, James, the brother of Jesus, who was a skeptic, converted after experiencing what he interpreted as a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to him. And then five, this is the 75% support, the tomb was empty the third day after Jesus' death. Now, any explanation that is put forth to account for Christianity has to explain all of these things. Now, that is how well they are supported historically. If you can't account for these facts, then you don't have an explanation. You have an excuse. Failure to account for any one fact out of this group shows that it is most that it most likely can't be true. Now, I am limited by how long I can keep your attention in a podcast episode since I am at an hour already. But there are a number of theories that have been put forth to explain the resurrection claim of Jesus Christ. And I may do a more in-depth episode on arguments against the resurrection of Jesus in the near future, but I'm going to limit myself to just a few in this episode for the reason that they are more common in the sense that I've heard them more. So we're going to talk first about the legend theory. Now, there are three forms of this one, embellishment, non-historical genre, and myths in other religions. Now, now we're going to talk about the embellishment theory and myths in other religions now, because I've heard them more commonly used. So, the legend theory embellishment. If you've ever heard a professor or teacher use the telephone analogy about how the gospel story grew over time, or that by way of gossip, Jesus' reputation was swelled, etc., there are usually appeals like, well, we all know what it's like to hear how far our grandfather walked in the snow to school, and every time it gets farther. Or even, we all understand how the telephone game works. If that much distortion could happen in five minutes, how much would happen hundreds of years? That's the embellishment theory. Now, this sounds really smart in a classroom setting where there is a lot of peer pressure to keep quiet, but it's a terrible explanation. For one, even critical scholars question very few words in the New Testament. So whatever legend embellishment cre creeped in, it had to do it before the New Testament was written, which is quite quick. Now, here are some points to consider, though. The resurrection story itself can be traced back to the real experiences of the original apostles. So, right out of the gate, 50 days after the death of Jesus, they were preaching the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Next, the church persecuted Paul was converted through a personal experience that he had apart from what was being preached by the early church. Paul was, was persecuting Christians despite what they said. He was converted very early, one to three years after Jesus' death. 
His hostility to the resurrection claim of early Christians makes it highly unlikely that he would have been persuaded by simple fable. And this also applies to the skeptic James. He had an experience that he believed to be the risen Jesus, which led his convert to his conversion apart from any story that he had heard. It also doesn't account for why the tomb was empty. If it was just embellishment, then the body would still have been in the tomb. And also, merely asserting something is not proving it. The resurrection claim has facts that back it up. Any other theory put forth has to have evidence too. Otherwise, it's just arbitrary. It's being made up to deny a conclusion without accounting for the evidence that leads to it. Now, you may want to deny the resurrection of Jesus, but you have to account for the evidence. And you also have to provide for your own evidence for what you say. And so, this one is not only, it's ridiculous. It has no support. Next, we'll talk about myths in other religions. Now, this theory says that the disciples merely copied from other religions, which also had claims of resurrection. Skeptics will often cite Osiris, Tammuz, Adonis, Attis, and Marduk as examples of resurrection claims in other religions. And there are some notable problems with this theory, though. Many of the accounts in these other religions are very unclear. You end up not being very sure about whether or not it is claiming a resurrection at all. They are often vague and don't resemble the story of Christ's resurrection at all. They either rose to heaven on the horse of Pegasus, on the horse Pegasus, or their names are declared among the stars. The majority of critical scholars today say that these myths in other religions didn't do what skeptics claim. Remember, there is a difference between a scholar who knows the data and a skeptic who just denies things. The first actual account of a dying and rising God that somewhat parallels the story of Jesus is at least 100 years after the death of Jesus, the earliest being Adonis. Even in the earliest writings about Adonis, there was no death and resurrection. It was added later. Contrast this with the fact that the death and resurrection of Jesus was being publicly preached 50 days after his public death and burial. There is not a clear death and resurrection of Marduk either. There are conflicting stories about what happened to Osiris. In fact, there are actually no accounts that claim Osiris rose from the dead. The tale of Osiris actually predates Christianity, but it is more a story of becoming a zombie than resurrection. And it's also notable that Osiris is not even the hero of the story. Secondly, these other accounts in other religions lack any evidence and are easily explainable. Even Islamic scholars regard the tales of miracles done by Muhammad as untrustworthy because they didn't appear until 75 years after his death. Now contrast that with the stories of Jesus' miracles, which were widely known while he was still alive, and even his enemies have recorded it. This parallel accounts consist um, these parallel accounts consist of long time past events that didn't circulate when eyewitnesses could be examined. Thirdly, this still doesn't account for any of the evidence that we have. Jesus died by crucifixion. The disciples sincerely believed and proclaimed his resurrection. Paul, who was hostile, was converted based on a personal experience. James, who was skeptical, was converted based on a personal experience. Not to mention, the tomb was actually empty. This argument actually doesn't explain anything. Now, you get the idea of how the facts work. Does the theory actually explain the evidence? Is there actual evidence that the theory is true? Is it just made up to deny the resurrection without dealing with the evidence? And we can go through a whole lot more. And maybe in an e another episode, we'll break these things down more further. 
But here's just a brief list of how this would work with other um, arguments. So people say, well, the disciples stole the body. Well, then why was Paul converted separately from them by a personal experience? Why was James converted separately by a personal experience? Why would they die for what they knew to be a lie if all the evidence points to the fact that they sincerely believed it? People say, oh, well, they were just hallucinating. Well, even if we were to grant the first mass hallucination ever recorded, which is contrary to the definition of a hallucination, then how does this account for the evidence? Because there were multiple, multiple groups where they saw him. And there was also individual ones. Also, the tomb was empty. Paul was converted separate from the disciples and later and was unsympathetic to their cause. James was converted separate and later and was unsympathetic to their cause. Also, there is no evidence for this. Some may say, well, someone else other than the disciples stole the body, like John Dominic Crossan. Well, why was Paul converted then by a personal experience? What was, why was James converted? Also, the disciples didn't believe based on an empty tomb. They believed when they professed to have seen and touched Jesus' resurrected body. Also, there is no evidence that someone else stole the body. There was not a single account anywhere in ancient history to even hint at that. And then, well, we have this one. Well, they went to the wrong tomb. They just went to the wrong tomb and saw an empty tomb and just guessed. Well, even if this were true, the appearances to the disciples need to be accounted for. They were converted after professing to see Jesus and touch him, not from an empty tomb. Paul was not convinced by an empty tomb, but was converted based on a personal experience, though he was unsympathetic to their cause. That goes for James as well. There was also no source that says that Jesus went to the wrong, that, um, that the disciples went to the wrong tomb. Also, the text records that it was the rich man Joseph of Arimathea whose tomb he was buried in. And this indicates that the location was known. And certainly the guards who were guarding the tomb would have known where it was. Okay, so well, they'll say, well, it's just a swoon theory. You know, he didn't actually die. You know, he just, he didn't actually die on the cross. They buried him and he woke up in the tomb. That's called the swoon theory. Well, the Journal of the American Medical Association in March 21, uh, 1986, says that this is impossible given the pathological effects of Jesus' scourging and crucifixion. And are you honestly going to tell me that given Jesus' scourging, which historically exposed bones, veins, and internal organs at times, and crucifixion, in which he was nailed through his hands and feet to a cross and stabbed in the side, that he pushed the stone away from the door by himself, beat up the guards that were watching his tomb by himself, walked to where his disciples were hiding because somehow he knew where they were, and appeared in this state and proclaimed himself the Prince of Life? This contradicts what Paul saw also. Paul records a glorious appearance of the risen Jesus. And then, of course, you have just, well, they were just delusional. Well, that doesn't explain the empty tomb. It also doesn't explain the conversion of Paul, who was unsympathetic to the Christians and thought that Jesus got what he deserved. The same goes for James, who thought that Jesus was a false prophet who got what he deserved. There is literally no other theory that can account for the data. And this leaves us with one conclusion. The strength of the historical facts, these minimal facts, plus the failure of these alternative naturalistic theories to account for the data, leads us to conclude that the resurrection of Jesus must be taken as a historical event. Now, to sum it up, Michael Lacona, who wrote an excellent dissertation on the historic historiographical approach for defending the resurrection of Jesus, he concluded this. We have examined six hypotheses according to the methodology discussed at greater length in the preceding chapters and outlined at the beginning of this chapter. 
we judged that five of the hypotheses are very weak, while the resurrection hypothesis fulfills all five criteria for the best explanation of the relevant historical bedrock, the only of the six to do so, and outdistances all of the competing hypotheses we examined by a significant margin. Accordingly, we were warranted in placing it on our spectrum of historical certainty at very certain. The only legitimate reasons for rejecting the resurrection hypothesis are philosophical and theological in nature. If supernaturalism is false, or a non-Christian religion is exclusively true, however, if one brackets the question of worldview, neither presupposing nor a priori excluding supernaturalism, and examines the data, the historical conclusion that Jesus rose from the dead follows. Now, since Jesus rose from the dead, according to his own words, everything that he said is verified to be true. You see, God is a king. You were under his jurisdiction as the creator of the universe and all things in it. As a king and judge, he has a moral law. You have sinned against the righteous law of the king, and you are a criminal in his sight. And this is what the Bible refers to as sin, or the breaking of God's law, and being a sinner, or a violator of God's law. God says, Thou shalt not lie. You've lied and are a liar. God says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But he magnified this to include the very thoughts of your heart also, Matthew 5.28. You've done this at least once, and so you're an adulterer. This isn't including the greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There are others also. The penalty for violating God's law is death, and you have earned it by willfully breaking God's commandments. Now there is coming a day of judgment when all of your crimes are laid out before you, and you are sentenced to your death. And in eternity, this state is called the second death. It is eternal death. But the king and judge is merciful and says that he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but he wants the criminal to turn from his wickedness to serve him faithfully. And he has himself made a way for you to be pardoned. This is called the gospel. It means good news. You were in a hopeless situation on your own, but God offers you good news. He himself has made an offering to pay for your sins if you would acknowledge your crimes to him, your sins, and embrace your Savior, the one who has made a way for you to be reconciled to the King, Jesus Christ. God became a man to live a righteous life, die a terrible death that he didn't deserve, be buried in a tomb, and God raised him from the dead as a testimony to you. And he says that he is not only able to forgive you, but that he is willing. Your part is to acknowledge your sins to him, repent of them, which means to turn from them, and embrace your only hope of salvation, the holy and righteous judge and king, Jesus Christ. Now, there are several really good sources to get into this topic if you're a believer. First, I'd recommend the book, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus by Gary Habermas and Michael Lacona. It's very down-to-earth and straightforward. It's an entry-level work on the subject, but it is quite good. I borrowed pretty much a lot of the outline and points from that book. Next, I'd recommend the lecture series on the resurrection of Jesus by Gary Habermas that you can buy and even sometimes download for free in MP3 form from Credo Courses, which is uh, www.credocourses.com. Lastly, I'd recommend the book that is available from InterVarsity Press called The Resurrection of Jesus, A New Historiographical Approach by Michael Lacona. And I believe it was originally his dissertation and was for his PhD and was revised and updated to be published in 2010. It's quite extensive and in-depth. If you don't want an academic level consideration of the subject, then that's not for you. 
But in closing, that is all for this episode. This wraps up our kind of one, two, three punch arguing for Christianity. Next episode, I'll be addressing a topic that has come up quite a lot recently and even personally. Um, the question of whether or not women have to wear head coverings according to the Bible. And this has been an issue that is gaining traction in certain places, and it's all over the internet, and someone asked me to do an episode on the subject. So look for that in about two weeks. Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. We do hope and pray that you would commit your life to Christ and continue in Him. We desire to see people seeking Jesus Christ and coming to know Him personally. If you have questions about salvation, the Bible, or your own walk with Christ, please contact Brother Jonathan by email. Brother John, that's J-O-N, at remnantbiblefellowship.com. That's Brother John at remnantbiblefellowship.com.